Let me uh, say a prayer and we'll jump into our lesson tonight. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. Such a great community of believers here. I so appreciate uh, just your Holy Spirit in this place, our sense of unity and love, the sense of zeal to dive into your word and let it shape us into the men and women you want us to be and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and pour your word and your lessons in and uh, help us to then take action on the things that you've shown us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably know the number. Text your questions during class. We did have one from last week, and I told you that, uh, well, just one that I thought we definitely should answer. And from last week, and I'm glad that it was asked, it was a question was, how many of the letters in the New Testament did Paul write? Because he's writing letters during these travels and during this time. And so I did want to tell you there are, uh, according to tradition, Paul wrote those 14 letters. Many people, if you just ask, would say he wrote 13 because it's not known for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's not self-identified like the rest of Paul's letters. But tradition, early tradition, is that Paul wrote it. So 13 or 14. And then uh, scholars now want to argue about all the rest of them. But basically, Paul wrote those letters. And by the way, I thought at this point in time, I'll just show you. Let me write on this map. I want to tell you what these letters are. It sometimes occurs to me that, not like me, not everybody grew up going to church and necessarily knows what are these weird names in the New Testament. But now, in this study, you know what all these things are. So, for example... Uh, Rome is actually over there, off our map. It's just west of there. But the letter Romans is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the Romans. Uh, first and Second Corinthians, that's the first letter that we have, and the second letter that he had that he wrote to place we were last week, Corinth. He started a church in Corinth. He spent 18 months there. He left. In fact, tonight is when he's going to write those letters. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesus, and he's going to write them back to Corinth. Those are just two letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. Galatians, you've seen uh, at Lystra where he got stoned, Iconium, Derby. This is a, a region called Galatia, like a state uh, in the Romans. He wrote that letter to all those churches, and they passed it around and copied it and read it to each other. Uh, Ephesians will be in Ephesus. That's a town in what's modern-day Turkey. They used to call that the province of Asia. But he wrote this to the church in Ephesus. Philippians, remember over here in Greece, Philippi, where he was imprisoned, the Philippian jailer in the earthquake and converted him. He wrote Philippians. That's just a letter that was written to the church in Philippi. Uh, Colossians is not on this map, but Colossae is a city right about there, just east of Ephesus. And so there's a church in Colossians. That church is going to get started tonight in our lesson tonight. First and second Thessalonians, the first and the second letter that we have to the church in, remember when he was in Thessalonica over in Greece, where it was not a very uh, good welcome, but he started a church and he wrote these letters back to encourage those churches. And then on down, first and second Timothy, remember he picked up this young apprentice, Timothy, who traveled with him and he began to send him out. Those are two letters that he wrote to encourage Timothy, the young pastor. Titus, we haven't met him yet, but he's another young man that came along with Paul and trained in the ministry and went off to go preach. Titus is a letter written to him. Philemon is an interesting letter written to a guy who lived in Colossae over here, and then Hebrews is a kind of an open letter. So I hope that isn't boring to you to tell you that, but uh, nobody's born knowing these things. That's why the New Testament books are named what they are. They're just letters to churches in those places. So 14 or 13, depending on your count of the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches. Do you have a question already? Because it's like a personal question about like that circumcision thing <laughs> you asked me a few weeks ago, is it? No, this one's easier. Um, so how did they get in the order that they're in? Good question. These, I just listed them in the order that they appear in your New Testament. That's not sacred. The order is not sacred. They're, the books are inspired, but the order is not inspired. Uh, you'll notice that in your uh, New Testament, the works of Paul are collected together. So the Pauline epistles, the pa epistle just means letter. It's just a, it's a Greek word for a letter. So the, the works of Paul, 
And when they say the Pauline letters, there was no sister named Pauline, okay? It was <laughs> Paul's letters. They were basically, the short version is, they're typically done longest to shortest because when you would write on a scroll, they didn't have books at that time. They used scrolls of sometimes leather, most of the times papyrus. Papyrus is basically like paper. So they would roll it up. Well, if you're going to write on a scroll, you don't want to get to the end and run out of room and go, oh, excuse me, the second half of this letter is on another scroll. They put the longest ones first. So typically they're arranged in the order of the length of the letter. So that's, that's why they're basically why they're put in that order. That's a good question. Okay, so that's uh, the letters of, of Paul, and that was our question from uh, last time. So let's move on today. What's happened, if you remember, we finished chapter 18 of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, make some notes in the margin, that's what I do in, in my Bible, is we'll be in chapter 19. But let me tell you what's happened. Paul has been making what they're called missionary journeys. I don't know if he thought they were missionary journeys. He just know he took off preaching the gospel, traveling, and he'd make trips from his home base, his home church, was in Antioch in Syria, uh, which is still modern-day Syria. So there's a large Gentile population in Antioch, very strong church. Remember, it's the place they were first called Christians there. They sent missionaries. They sent Paul and, and his uh, friends out. This is the finishing, his second missionary journey. This is between approximately 49 and 51 A.D. So remember, Jesus raised from the dead about let's just call it 33 AD, so now about 16 years later, Paul's finishing his second missionary journey. In our last uh, lesson, we finished in Corinth. So over in Greece, chapter 18 is about Paul's ministry there. He spent 18 months in Corinth. Luke only tells, takes a few verses to finish this, so I'm just going to tell you how he finishes and gets back home. Luke doesn't record very much. From Corinth, he took that young couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that he met in Corinth. They were Jews from Rome who had become Christians. They were tent makers like Paul. And you'll see them later in the New Testament just doing ministry everywhere. They're just a dynamic couple that were just engaged in ministry. He took them with him, and he sailed across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, major seaport on the coast of what's now Turkey, you're going to see a lot of Ephesus in this lesson tonight. From there, he left Aquila and Priscilla, and he said, you guys get a church started here. And the Christians in Ephesus, the new Christians there, said, Paul, stay. He said, I, I need to get to Jerusalem. I will come back if I can, but Aquila and Priscilla will stay. I'm finishing up chapter uh, 18 for you. So they remained, and he sailed to Caesarea, Caesarea on the sea, the beautiful harbor that Herod uh, the great built. From there, he did a very quick trip to Jerusalem. This doesn't, he doesn't spend much time here. And then back home to his home church in Antioch in Syria. In the meantime, Luke finishes by introducing one other character. I just want to tell you about him. He won't figure prominently in our story. But after Paul left Ephesus, a guy named Apollos came. And I'll read you what it says. It said, now a Jew named Apollos, this is chapter 18, verse 24, a native of Alexandria. So he's from Alexandria, Egypt, a center of learning. He's probably a lawyer. Don't hold that against him. He was an eloquent man, very competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, meaning he was a believer, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things about Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John, meaning all he knew was John, that there's a Messiah coming. And so he was teaching that. He didn't know that Jesus had come and his ministry and so forth. So Aquila and Priscilla grab him and say, hey, you're an awesome preacher. Let us tell you the rest of the story. And they did. And he becomes a dynamic preacher. From there, he says, I'd like to go back to Greece. And he goes to Corinth and preaches there. Paul is at home in Antioch. And that's where our story in chapter 19, picks up. Apollos is back in Corinth, and Paul is in Antioch. And from there, he doesn't spend much time. He takes off on this third 
missionary journey. And this one's going to last a little longer. Remember the second journey, he gets home in about 51 AD. Don't know what time of the year. The very next year, 52, say 52 to 55, he takes off again on what's called his third missionary journey. So let's see where he went. He takes off from, and he's going to revisit some of his churches, but I'll just kind of show you. He's going to leave Antioch, and he's going to make a beeline, basically, to Ephesus on the coast. He'll visit a few churches on the way, but he doesn't spend much time, a day or two there, and he's basically headed for Ephesus. He told them he would come back. The reason he went back is Ephesus is a major city. It is the biggest city, the most influential city uh, by far in the whole province of Asia. In other words, the whole area of what's modern-day Turkey. It is the big uh, commercial, political, cultural. It's the seat of Roman government in Turkey. It's It's a massive area. So while Apollos was at Corinth preaching, Paul left Antioch. He took the road through the interior, meaning he just took the road through Turkey, and he went to Ephesus. So I want to tell you and show you a little bit about Ephesus. Uh, It's a great city. Even today, the ruins at Ephesus are magnificent. The city itself, and it hasn't been even nearly all excavated. So I want you to see a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city for centuries to come, a huge center. For example, Ephesus is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, think now, this is Paul in about 52 AD. Book of Revelation is written over 40 years later, say 95 AD. And that's John, Jesus telling him, write these letters to the seven churches of Asia. Asia is this province. Those seven churches are all right around Ephesus in that area. Ephesus is one of those. So it's going to have a strong Christian community for a long time. John, the Apostle John, after he leaves Patmos, where he sees the vision of Revelation, say 95 AD, he goes back to Ephesus and lives and preaches there, and tradition has it that he dies there. Timothy, that young apprentice, pastor, ends up in Ephesus preaching there, and tradition says that he was killed there for preaching the gospel. So he was uh, martyred there. He was killed there. And then during this time that Paul is going to be here, during this missionary journey, he's going to spend almost three years in Ephesus. During this time period, all those seven churches of Revelation get started because Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and he's sending out these young pastors to start churches in that whole region. So a lot happens in Ephesus. It's a really important uh, area. So let me just show you a little bit of Ephesus. Picture on the left is just... Uh, the ruins of a major thoroughfare. There are just massive original roads and streets there. Of course, all the columns are original, and so the, it's a very popular tourist place because it's gorgeous. They've just unearthed so much there, so many of the temples, so many of the houses. So it's a major thoroughfare on the left. On the right, you get an example of all the temples We don't have any idea of just how much idolatry there was. But as you walk down this road, literally they're colonnaded on the side. They would have been covered on both sides with those columns all the way down the side. Beautiful columns. And then there would be temples all along the way. So there's an example of one of the temples on the right, just right there beside the road. There's another gorgeous uh, remains of a temple just Again, another temple right there on the side, the main thoroughfare going through there. Beautiful remains. They're in great condition. Another beautiful big arch, another big temple. I mean, as you're walking through there, you realize, oh, my goodness, this place is incredibly pagan, incredibly hostile to the idea that there's one true God to Christianity. Uh, There's my favorite tourist on the left, Laura, standing by one of those Again, another temple on the side. On the right, you'll see a side street. And you can see the original stones of the streets and then some of the columns. Imagine it just totally column line. Very rich, beautiful city. Even by our standards, it would be an unbelievably beautiful city. This is one of the great wonders of Ephesus. This is also right off the main road. This is what's left, the facade 
You can imagine the building then behind it in ancient times would have been massive and huge. This is called the Celsus Library. This was a library that contained, oh, no one knows how many, but one of the biggest libraries in the world. So it would contain a lot of those scrolls at that time. So Ephesus was a center of learning, a center of research, big university there. Uh, not many places had libraries, and obviously everything's copied by hand, but a massive beautiful uh, library there. And then here's another one of the lined ways. This one is the way, we're going to talk about the theater a little more, but this is the broad thoroughfare that leads to the theater. You can see it basically carved into a hillside. I'll show you some even better pictures of that, but imagine that with all those massive columns down the side and uh, fountains you know, they figured out how to pump water in there, and they had fountains. It was nice. It was cool. There's uh, most of these streets, by the way, and this is kind of amazing, but most of these streets actually have uh, plumbing under them to, for water runoff. In other words, they had sewer systems. And so most of there's hollow underneath the center of these roads, and you'll see runoff areas. I mean, the engineering's pretty impressive. So Ephesus is just a, an amazing town. And what Paul did there affected that entire region, and it became that, that area of Asia, as you'll see John writing about 45 years later in the book of Revelation, is heavily persecuted, but a really strong group of believers in that area. This, by the way, I keep talking to you about the bathhouses and the gymnasia, a gymnasium. Gymnasium's a Greek word. And it's where we get our word gymnasium. But for them, it was more like, think, like a YMCA crossed with a country club a little bit. It was a very social place, but it was a place where you could work out and typically adjoined a public bathhouse. And so the way they did their baths was they'd had different rooms. You know, you'd have the cold water, the tepid water, the hot water. You could then get a rub down afterwards, a massage. You could exercise. I talked to you about the Greek style of exercising in the nude, and uh, men would bathe in the nude. It was just their, their mores about that were a little different. This is an example of some of the engineering, and you'll see these all over this area. Everywhere you see a Greco-Roman city, you see this engineering. Those uh, piles would have had a floor on top of them. And they would have slaves boiling water, big furnace, you know, boil, heating water, and they would run water under there. And that, they basically had a, a hot sauna, if you will. So this was, think about having a floor on top of that and then fire and the hot water underneath and getting the steam coming up. So the engineering is amazing, but in all the major cities, you would see this as a major social area. And I've been talking to you about that a little bit. And I didn't want to show it to you because I didn't want you to think I was getting in a rut, but there are public lavatories here as well. Just shown you enough of those. But uh, so you see the social life, and this is where Paul comes into this kind of life. He's in a cosmopolitan world, a very idolatrous world, and I just like you to get a feel for the place that, where he was preaching. So let's see what happened. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took uh, the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. There are going to be three big events. I mean, he's going to spend almost three years there, so many things happen. But Luke records three interesting events. I'll only spend a moment on this one. But he said when he got there, he found some disciples, some believers. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, well, then what were you baptized into? And they said, John's baptism. Let me pause for a second. Let's tell you something that next time you study John the Baptist, you'll have more respect for him. So all they know is what John the Baptist preached. You know, they didn't have the internet, didn't have newspaper subscriptions that you could get in Turkey, right, to say, hey, Jesus, the Messiah came. They crucified him. He was raised from the dead. Uh, wow, this is unbelievable, you know, life-changing, earth-shattering news. They don't know that. All they know what John the Baptist was preaching. Repent because the kingdom of God is coming. There's one coming after me who's greater than I am. In other words, the Messiah is going to come. That's all they knew. And so Paul is going to tell them, well, then let me finish the story for you. But what's really fascinating, think about this. Apollos comes from Alexandria, Egypt, and he's heard John's preaching. These guys are up in 
uh, Ephesus, in Turkey, they've heard John's preaching. I want you to realize John the Baptist was a big deal. I mean, that guy was just sounded like, oh, you're a guy with wearing, you know, leather skins and eating locust and honey and you're preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. There are people all over the world that have heard that and believed that news. John the Baptist was a big deal. So for John the Baptist to say, I must decrease and Jesus must increase, and his disciples like, what are you kidding me? You're bigger than Billy Graham ever thought about being. I mean, you are the preacher. And he's like, no, that's not the point. I'm just here to point people to him. Amazing story. It's why Jesus said, John the Baptist, of men born of women, there's none greater than he is. It's just a powerful story. So that's a sideline, but think about that. You've got people all over the world that know John's preaching. So he said, they said, John's baptism. And Paul said that was a baptism of repentance, but he told them to believe in the one coming after him. And so he explained to them about Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. Paul then placed his hands on them. This is the only time in Acts that you see this happen, meaning baptism, then placing the hands on him. So I don't want you to freak out and think, hey, why didn't somebody lay their hands on me after I was baptized at crossings so I could speak in tongues? Okay, that wasn't normative here either, but this is, watch what he did. Placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in languages or tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of these men. From there, Paul entered the synagogue of the Jews, as he typically did, and he spoke boldly for three months in the synagogue, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. By the way, I want to point this out too. Look at that. What's he teaching? He's teaching the same thing Jesus taught. And remember, how did Jesus start preaching? What was Jesus' basic message? And you think, wow, was it the Sermon on the Mount? Was it the parables? He taught a lot of things, but the scripture says Jesus began his ministry, and everywhere he went, he said, repent, meaning turn around. It's time to go a different direction because the kingdom of God is coming. It's here. And that's what Paul's preaching. He said, you know, remember that God's rule on earth? The kingdom of God means God's invaded the evil earth, and he's decided, I'm taking this enemy territory back. I'm going to get my POWs, us, and I'm going to free them. The kingdom of God is here. That's what Paul's teaching too. I tell you that because I want you to understand that all of the preachers in the New Testament are teaching the same thing. Because sometimes we read it and you think, well, Jesus was teaching this, and Paul went on and taught some other things. They're all teaching the same gospel, exactly the same thing. So he went to talk about the kingdom of God to the Jews. Some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. That's what Christianity was called, by the way. You'll see uh, this used a lot in Acts. They call it the way. In other words, the way of living, the way of following Jesus. They were publicly maligning the way. They were basically slandering. So Paul left. He took the disciples, the ones that believed, and he rented a lecture hall of Tyrannus, which you could do in those days. They had, remember Athens, where they had all these philosophers and teachers? He just rented a lecture hall and said, kind of like today, starting a church in a movie theater or in a public school. That's what he did. He said, I'll rent this place, and I'm going to talk about Jesus every day. You guys go out there and invite your friends. We're going to tell everybody this good news. And that's what he did. And he did that for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia, in other words, all of the nation of Turkey now, that whole region, heard the word of the Lord. This is the last synagogue experience that Luke will record with Paul. From here on, after we leave Ephesus, Paul's ministry is going to change. God's going to take him from starting churches, which they've successfully done, to confronting the Roman Empire. But we'll get to that in our next story. Let's see what else happens in Ephesus while he's here. Again, Paul, uh, I think I mentioned this to you last time, and I want to repeat it. He's going to fervently preach to the Jews. But when the point comes where they said, some of them said, we don't believe, and in fact, we're going to get hostile, he moved on. Paul didn't say, gosh, I should preach differently, or wow, I guess I didn't have enough laser lights, you know, or what do I need to do? He understood that his job was to, to compassionately and passionately tell them the truth, but God was the one that would draw them to him. So then he went on, and he began to preach to the Jews and to the Greeks. Second scene 
that Luke shares with us that happened during this time period. This is fascinating. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Notice how that's said. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him and were taken back to sick people, they were cured. Now, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. There were seven sons of a guy named Sceva, who was a Jewish chief priest, and they were doing this. One day, they said this, and the evil spirit replied to them, I know Jesus, and I respect Paul, but I don't know who you are. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped them, overpowered them, beat the tar out of them. Okay, that's not in the Greek, but you can infer that. Gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high regard. Many of those who believed now came openly confessed their deeds. These are Christians, evil deeds. A number who had practiced magic or sorcery brought the scrolls, that they, their magic scrolls, and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of those scrolls, it came to 50,000 drachmas. ton of money by our standards. I mean, this is an unbelievable amount of money. A drachma is a day's wages. So, I mean, this is a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I want to talk about this just a little bit because this is something that's a little different from us. Basically, Paul, you notice an anachronism in this? You see the books? No books, scrolls. But in 1649 AD, when this was painted, there were books. But basically, what he did was he basically said, he's teaching the word of the Lord, and people realize there's power in this. But what's this deal with sorcery? That was a big deal in the ancient world, but it was really a big deal in Ephesus. And I know this sounds a little odd to us, but I want to make this actually more applicable to us. But as a matter of historical record, they were very committed to magic. In fact, many of their statues, the goddess Artemis, I'll show you her in a minute, weird-looking girl, but really big goddess to them, had some gibberish words carved on the bottom, and they thought those words had power in them. They thought if you said those words, think Harry Potter, you know, you say the right words, magic spell, and demons would come out, or people would be healed. They thought there were power in these magical gibberish words, and so they would study and write scrolls about the arcane arts of say this incantation or that incantation. Today, you might think a little bit like modern-day witchcraft, Wiccan kind of study, that words have the power to cast spells. They believed that. It was a thriving, thriving business. So what about the Jews? Jews were kind of involved in this idea of exorcism. By the way, that's the only place in the New Testament you see the word exorcism. It's actually the only place known in all of Greek literature, the earliest place known, where you see that word exorcism. But later, you'll see it in a lot of uh, secular literature after the time of this writing. But basically, the idea is getting a demon out of a person. So they recognize demons. It's not just Christians or Jews that believe that. Pagans believe that, too, that there were demonic spiritual forces that could harm people, that could inhabit people. The Jews were actually pretty common for this because it was kind of a deal because you took money for this, right? Is their language, Hebrew, just sounded so cool to people. It sounded like, oh, man, those words are awesome. You know, that, that probably works, right? And so they, it was not uncommon to see Jews being exorcists because they also believed in it. So they would use these incantations. What these guys were doing was they were just calling on the name of Jesus. Believe it or not, you actually see this in those ancient scrolls. Some of those ancient magical scrolls exist. There are several collections. These are a couple of quotes out of the Paris collection. They're a collection of these ancient magical papyri, scrolls, that would tell you the incantations. And here are a couple of incantations. This is fascinating. I adjure you by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Now, these are pagans using it. So he's not the God of the Hebrews. He's... God. But the point is, 
they thought, okay, this Jesus name's got some power. This guy seems, if you say those words, maybe the demons will come out. Look at this next one. Hail God of Abraham, hail God of Isaac. This is a chant that you would do. Hail God of Jacob, Jesus Christus, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. Well, it's kind of gibberish, isn't it? I mean, it's like you're just saying a bunch of words that sound like Hebrew gods and stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. And they thought there was power. I think it's fascinating that you see what's happening in Acts corroborated. These are from those magic papyri of the time. Well, the lesson that I'd like to take out of this, by the way, the rabbis forbade that. In fact, when they saw Paul and some of the apostles healing people in the name of Jesus, they said, that's magic. You know, they didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. I mean, the unbelieving Jews. And so the rabbi said, that is, that's just magic like the pagans do. Except it really worked and Jesus is really real. But Christianity, one of the things God's doing there with these miracles. Remember, miracles always have a purpose. It's not God just trying to show off. What did these miracles accomplish? Well, you got these guys trying to use chance to get demons to come out. Right? Paul's casting them out just like that by the power of Jesus' name. You have people trying to heal people. Paul, you have your handkerchief touch him and it touches a sick person. They're well. It works. What are these miracles saying? They're saying, you believe in magic. I'm going to show you the real power. Does that make sense? These miracles were used here and it worked to say, all that superstitious junk you believe in, let me just show you. Jesus Christ is real boom, you're healed. That's why those miracles happen, to advance the gospel. And it really did advance the gospel. One little lesson out of this. Christianity is not magic. The power is not in the incantation. As those Jewish exorcists found out, there's no power in just saying, uh, Jesus says you guys need to come out. There's no power in them just saying that name. But Paul had power when he said that name. What's the difference? And I, I want to bring it to a modern day thing because we're a little bit guilty of this ourselves or we can be sometimes we use Jesus name like a magic incantation also we think okay we'll invoke the name of Jesus over it and it'll happen now you've probably never done this but I'll confess that I have it's like you pray to God and I'll say okay God I'd like this to happen I'd like that to happen I'd like this to happen, and could you hurry up on that when you're a little slow? And I'd also like you to work this out in this particular way. Now, in Jesus' name, boom, it's got to happen, right? I said the incantation. We're a little tempted sometimes to say that, but here's the interesting thing. I want you to look at this and say, why does this work when Paul does it, and it doesn't work when these other guys do it? I mean, we want the power of Jesus that Paul wielded, or God wielded through him to be more accurate. But sometimes we act like the guys who are invoking Jesus' name like it's an incantation. And what's the difference? The difference is this, that the power of the Spirit is unleashed in lives that are humbly committed and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Why can Paul say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're healed? And these other people could say, hey, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're healed. And this works and this doesn't. Because the power of the Spirit, it's not Paul's power, the power of the Spirit works through humble, surrendered followers of Christ. And that's a powerful lesson for us, too, is when we pray, remember in James it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But don't be double-minded. That's like being tossed by the waves of the sea. Let not that person think they're going to get anything from God. What's he basically saying? He said, you can't just say, oh, hey, by the way, God, you're a nice guy. I want some wisdom. I want some of this. I want some of that. It's the faith. It's the trust. It's that humble submission and obedience to God's word, and that's when God's power flows in our lives. I think there's a, a powerful lesson there for us as well. God's power flows through us not by mentioning a special name, but by a contrite, surrendered heart. Does that make sense? That's why Paul can say, I mean, all the scripture connects. I just desperately want you to see this. In 2 Corinthians 12, when he prays to God, God, I need you to do something for me. And God says, no, 
I'm not going to. My grace is enough for you, and Paul said. Good enough for me. And remember what he said? I will boast in my weakness because when I am weak, that's when I am strong. What does he mean? When I am weak, God's power flows through me. Okay, that's getting too preachy. But that's a powerful idea. I really want you to think about that, that God's power works in us when we surrender to him. Question? Yes. Um, you were talking about books and scrolls earlier. Uh-huh. Could people read? Who could read? Yeah, not uh, could people read in ancient times. A lot of Jews could read. I think I've told you the story about how they educated their kids. Uh, in this culture, not a huge literacy rate. Uh, just in general, in the Greco-Roman world. Typically speaking, the upper classes would have had the leisure to get tutors. There were not public schools at that time, so you would have to get tutors or go to private school kind of a thing. So generally speaking, the upper classes, the better educated people uh, could read. Others would read enough to do receipts and things like that. But in general, those scrolls are being read by the upper classes of people. One of the things that made Paul stand out, Paul is brilliantly well-educated. This guy clearly knows Greek, speaks it quite well. Remember in Athens, quotes the Greek poets and philosophers whom he has read in Greek, because they weren't translated at that time. He knows and speaks Hebrew and knows his Old Testament. You're going to find out next week he knows Latin, and he's a Roman citizen. So, I mean, he's, he's right there amongst that educated elite. Does it just seem like it, or were there a lot of people that were demon-possessed in this time? <laughs> were there a lot? It does, it, it does it just seem like it, or were there a lot of demon-possessed people? It just seems like it. And I mean that seriously, not just tongue-in-cheek. When you read the Gospels, you read here, if you add them up, there aren't actually very many instances. But in this short little account, you see that, and you see it because... They're trying to make a point. All these miracles, in other words, were there miracles like this happening just constantly? It's like every day, oh, well, Paul did 25 more miracles today. No. Those are recorded in more density in these passages because they're there to make a point to you. Does that make sense? So typically, no. Uh, it's not like everywhere you went, they're demon-possessed people. Those stories are more frequent here because they're trying to make a, a point of it. Here's a, another question. This sounds kind of silly, but let me flip it around. You've heard about five sermons of Paul that are recorded in Acts. Paul's probably preaching about 500 sermons in here, but he doesn't record all of them. So I think some of it's just the way it seems because they're recorded to give you a, to tell you a point. Good question. Uh, do you think that that kind of demon possession exists today? Does demon possession exist today? Okay, there are going to be different opinions amongst Christians. You know, I like to, like to inform you about this. But there are Christians who believe that no, Satan is bound. Demon possession is not possible in this era, in this time period of history. There are Christians who believe that demon possession is possible for those who open themselves up to that. There are others who believe that no, demon possession does not happen so much, but demon oppression does. And what I mean by that is, think Job. Job didn't have Satan possessing him, but Job had Satan orchestrating things to test him, uh, illness and the bad things happened to him. That's called oppression. So Christians see that in a variety of ways. Uh, it's hard to be too dogmatic about that. Clearly, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the letter Paul writes to Ephesus, he says to us, our battle, guys, is not really against flesh and blood. It's really against the demonic powers in this world. Now, that doesn't say the demonic powers inside people, but it does say there is the reality that there are evil forces in this world. The question of whether or not they can inhabit people is one that Christians are going to disagree on. Some people will say, well, I have seen things that I am very convinced that that had to be demon possession. Others would say, I think it's just mental illness. Others would say, that's just the way crazy Uncle Charlie's always been. You know, but <laughs> I will say this. Let me just, without being definitive about that, because you, you can really take some different points of view. I do want to tell you one thing, though, that I'm absolutely certain of. 
Uh, and there are going to be some people that disagree with me about this, but I'm absolutely certain of what the Scripture teaches about you as a follower of Christ. Can a demon come possess you? No. No. And I'll tell you why. The simple answer is, in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this, and you're seeing this all over Acts. The Holy Spirit isn't always working miraculously in believers, but the one thing you see is the Holy Spirit's working in every believer. Everybody's being given gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living inside Christians as a down payment. Ephesians 1.13 says, when you believed, let me use a better word for us, when you trusted Jesus, that's what that word really means, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's a, that is a down payment on the promise of heaven that God can deliver what he says he can deliver. So when you trusted Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus, when, uh, in 1 John it says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Meaning God is greater than Satan and the Holy Spirit in you, Satan is no match for the Holy Spirit. So I, I wanna, I'm as sure of this from the scriptures as anything I am. I do not want you walking out thinking, oh my goodness, can Satan possess me? The Holy Spirit inside of you is far more powerful than the, the evil in this world. So I, I want you to be comfortable with that. Okay, so I'll leave that there. Okay, what's it like to see Ephesus today in person? What is it like? It's an, oh, it's an awesome site. I assume this is what you're asking. It's a, it's a great site uh, because they've excavated so much of downtown. I mean, there are houses and all kinds of things all around. They've probably excavated 10% of it, but it's the really cool 10%, you know. And so they, you're going to see some even better sites as we go on of this. But Ephesus is a great place to see. So hopefully maybe we'll take a tour there sometime. It'd be great to go to western Turkey and, and see the churches of Revelation. Well, I better move on because there's one other interesting thing that happens here. Well, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, this Christian movement. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is a goddess, the special goddess in Ephesus. She is the patron goddess of that city, and they have a temple to Artemis that is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'll show you a rendition, artist's rendition of it in a minute, but it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so they were very proud of Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Artemis has got, that's the Greek name, the Roman name would be Diana, the goddess Diana. So he made shrines of Artemis, major tourist trade. Brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and all the related trades, and he said, men, you know, we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province. How long is he going to be in Ephesus? Less than three years. And he's already destroying the economy. This is powerful. He says that man-made gods are not gods at all. There is a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. That's true. There have been 33 shrines to Artemis found in what used to be the Roman Empire, one of them in Rome. This is the biggest. Okay, I told you she's a weird-looking girl. This is Artemis. Artemis is probably a pre-Greek goddess. She's probably the Anatolian, think Turkish, mother goddess, hence the breasts. Okay, so this is what they thought. This is the goddess Artemis, and she's a goddess of fertility, and they thought that she was real. I mean, she's a real goddess, and they built a massive, a bunch of these kinds of images have been found, none of them in silver, because Demetrius made silver objects like this and sold them, and they would put them in their house, and they would worship them. They would worship the goddess Artemis. They built this unbelievable temple. This is the back side of the temple. A temple is as long as a football field, a little longer than a football field actually, about 60 feet longer, and oh, 160 feet wide. Massive temple. Sits on a platform that's even bigger than that. This is a massive temple. This is the remains of the back of it. I'll show you the front. That's the remains, and that's, I admit, it's not impressive remains, but you can just kind of imagine what this would be like. It's huge, massive temple to Artemis. The upper left in Turkey is a 
model that they made. I mean, this is a, they rebuilt this thing, sort of. And then the others are artist's rendition. Magnificent temple to Artemis. But here's the interesting thing about it. The temple uh, was very rich. Obviously, not only were they worshiping Artemis, this was big business. And the temple itself, I mean, it was covered in gold leaf. People would bring offerings to it. It was the richest bank in all of Turkey, in all of that whole province of Asia. They had so much money, so many things, they decided to start making loans. So the Temple of Artemis wasn't just a religious organization. They were sort of like the Federal Reserve Bank. And so they were very powerful, economically powerful. So what happened, what Demetrius is saying is, number one, let's be honest. He's saying, look, they're ruining our business. They're going to break the bank. And this is our whole city. Our whole city's going under because this bozo Paul is out there preaching that there's one true God, this Jesus, and everybody believes it. Now, you can't really get a riot going by saying, hey, he's robbing our pocketbook, but you can appeal to patriotism. Our city is going to lose its good name. Our goddess is going to be discredited. Well, that's enough to get people revved up. And so basically what they're saying is, Paul, it's okay for you to preach in that lecture hall all you want to, but you start affecting business, you start affecting our culture, whoa, you have gone too far. Well, sure enough. Oh, this is cool. <laughs> this is in Turkey. Okay, I know, this is, sounds funny. I told you, it was big business then. It's big business now. Okay, this, is, this actually makes sense. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to detour here. Fake watches are a big deal there. I mean, I bought a Rolex. I'm sure it's genuine. Unbelievably cheap. You know, five bucks. I got a Rolex. They explained something about cutting out the middleman or something, but it was a good deal, right? Okay. Fake watch. Well, it's so common that the watches are fake and they're cheap. The guys who sell good quality fake watches, these are genuine fake watches, right? That was just too good to pass up. That's a true... True sign, true story. This guy's saying, yeah, my watches are fake, but they're going to run for a while. Okay, not like those cheap fake watches over there. Okay, so that's Demetrius. He said, you're killing our business here, right? Well, when they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So he's got their whole patriotism going. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. At least 250,000 people in the city. At least. That's the minimum. A whole city's in an uproar. They seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. Okay, so they go to try to find Paul. Can't find him. They grab his buddies. Have you noticed, this is the second time, that it is not good to be a buddy of Paul because he's not there when they grab you and take you in, right? This is the second time this has happened to Gaius. You may not remember this. They grab him, and uh, they rushed as one man into the theater. This theater holds 25,000 people. They rush into the theater. Paul wanted to go out and talk to the crowd, but the disciples said, I don't think so. Even some of the officials of the province, these are Roman officials, they were friends of Paul. That's interesting, too. They sent him a message saying, do not go into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Typical riot. Most of the people don't even know why they're there. The Jews pushed Alexander one of the Jewish guys out front, to say, hey, that's not us. These are the Christians. It's not us. Some of the crowd were shouting at him. He wanted to make a defense, but when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, unbelievable. I want to show you what this looks like. There is the theater. That's a good little view of walking up to the theater. That's the theater. You can see some people in there, 25,000 people shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, bring Paul out here, we're going to kill this guy. I mean, it's just frightening. And so you're having this unbelievable riot there, just two hours of chanting. This is a great view, by the way, of the theater. You're sitting in the theater seats and you're looking out. This is so cool. When you're sitting up there, it's gorgeous. You have to think of the, the sea, the ocean, coming all the way up to this area. The ocean today is a mile away, just from silting up over 2,000 years, right? But in those days, 
the ocean, the harbor was right there. And this was a grand procession. And it's gorgeous. Look at that. Imagine all those pillars that you would process in from the harbor and you'd be looking at that theater. When you're in the theater for a play, you're looking out onto the ocean. Absolutely gorgeous. Except on this day, when you've got 25,000 people chanting, death to Paul, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So that's what's happening here. Finally, uh, the city clerk, think mayor. That's just the term they use. This guy's in charge. The mayor quieted the crowd and he said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Two things I want you to notice, by the way. Number one, the officials don't think Paul has not broken any laws. I mean, everything he said was true. He was destroying their business. Demetrius was right. He's destroying their business by teaching these are idols. Quit worshiping this nonsense. That's true, but that doesn't break any Roman laws. Now, next week, the Roman Empire is going to wake up to this, and things are going to get really dicey. But for now, he comes out and he said, look, we, everybody knows that we're guarding Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven. That's interesting, because in other literature, not just in the Bible, a meteorite fell long time before this. And when they went to find the metal of the meteorite, it was kind of in the form of that goddess image, or at least, you know. You ever seen one of those things on the internet where somebody makes a pancake and it looks like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, or something, or, you know, one of those kinds of deals. So it fell from heaven. Oh my goodness, that's our goddess Artemis. She's sending us a message. We're the Ephesians. We better build her a big old temple. Well, that's what they did. And they believed it. Listen to what he says. Don't, doesn't everybody know that Artemis sent us a message from heaven? We're awesome. We all know we're awesome. Therefore, since this is undeniable, you need to quit getting revved up and not do anything rash here. You have brought these men here. They haven't robbed our temple. They haven't blasphemed the goddess. So if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have an issue, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Now, the proconsul is the Roman governor. Think Pontius Pilate. Now, actually, this is interesting. At this time, they don't have a proconsul because uh, the proconsul who was there, a guy named Julius Solanus, he was the Roman proconsul uh, of Ephesus, governed that whole region. But when Nero came to power, when Nero, a little crazy, when he came to emperor in October of 54, so this is just after that time period, his wife, Agrippina, weird name, Agrippina, didn't like this guy and had him poisoned. So kind of awkward, like, well, you could see the proconsul, but he's been poisoned. So while we're waiting for the next guy, it's interesting how the Bible is interacting with all of real history here. That's why I tell you that. So he said, so there are proconsuls, not today, but we'll get one eventually, and they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, you need to do it in a legal assembly. By the way, I got a lot of by the ways tonight, but I want to tell you, uh, by the way on this, I want you to see this word, this assembly. That is the word ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia. Does that sound familiar to you? It's all over the New Testament, and we translate it church. So I want you to understand the word church is the same word. So when you said ekklesia to them, they said, oh, it's an assembly of the people. Yeah, that's what we call our services. In other words, Christians used regular words. I don't want you to think that things like righteousness, sanctification, uh, church, they sound like religious words to us. They were not religious words then. He said, you need to have a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events, and the Romans don't like riots. We would not be able to account for that. And after he said this, he dismissed them and sent them on their way. So that's what happened in Ephesus in that three years. So that's kind of the background. There are three really uh, good lessons here, but let me pause, and I think we have time for a couple questions. Then I want to give you kind of the what's the point of this thing, in, of this lesson out of Ephesus. Question? Can you tell us about the size of Ephesus population-wise, how that would have compared to contemporary cities um, of this time? Yes. Minimum 250,000. It's hard to know for sure. Probably much, much bigger than that. It is, you think about the big city. Rome, the biggest. Alexandria is huge. Corinth is huge. Ephesus is huge. That's about it. I mean, those are your massive cities in that whole piece of the world. So it's right up there in the top four or five in that era. Oh, it's a huge city. 
in, in that time. I mean, when I say 250,000, you don't think much of that. But in that time, think 6 million today, 7 million. I mean, massive city. Good question. Yep, good. Well, let me uh, just, in, as a matter of time, let me recap a couple of lessons. Luke gives us three images of three years. He could have written a whole book on what happened in three years. Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians from here. And when you read those letters, you realize some bad stuff has happened in Ephesus. When he's writing, he talked. That's that beautiful passage in Second Corinthians. He said, we have been brought to the point of death. He said, we are perplexed, but we are not abandoned. We are knocked down, but we are not crushed. In other words, there's real drama. I mean, real trials happening. Luke only talks about these three things. Why? I think three reasons. Number one, Christianity and magic. The true power of Christianity made the magic look for what it was, just superstition. And people came and burned that magic and said, if there's power in the Holy Spirit by submitting to Jesus Christ, that's the real power. Second lesson was, as long as Paul was just teaching over there in the lecture hall, fine. But you start impacting the culture, now the wrath of the culture comes at you. Does this sound familiar? Because today, there are a lot of people in our country and certainly in the world that would say, you just say whatever you want to say in your churches. But don't you be impacting this culture. Don't you be trying to impact the laws and the culture and the behavior of our country because then the wrath of the culture comes upon us. And that's happening today as well. It's a timeless truth. That's good. Because if the culture isn't mad at you, you must not be doing a very good job. Have you noticed one thing about Paul? He goes and preaches the truth of the gospel. He's not hurting anybody. He's not hitting anybody. He's not killing anybody. He's not doing anything wrong. And yet, everybody's trying to kill him. That's the sign that you're telling the truth. So it's a good thing that our culture is reacting to us. That means we must be telling the truth and the way we're supposed to. And then the third thing is this. Think in three years of the religious and the cultural and the economic impact that the gospel had here. And I want to make this point. Just like saying Jesus' name as a magic formula has no power, believing in Jesus doesn't make this kind of difference. You're going to say, whoa, now wait a minute. I, you, you had me there, but now you have a problem. I mean what I say. I want you to listen carefully to this. Believing in Jesus doesn't do this because even the demons believe in Jesus. What does this is following Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul didn't just say, hey, I happen to believe in Jesus too. So, anybody up for happy hour tonight? And uh, what kind of game? Who's playing tonight? You know, He was like, you know what? Jesus Christ has totally transformed my life, is what he said. I follow Jesus Christ. The old man has died. I'm a new creature. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. I have the full life that Jesus promised. It has made all the difference in my life, and I'd like to share that with you. That's following Jesus. That's what's so powerful. That's why today in America, I just want to explain these two things. If you ask people in America, do you believe in God, still well up in the 80% of Americans say, yes, I do. But Barna and some other research have shown that when you survey people who say, I believe in God, by most moral statistics, divorce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's not much difference. You're probably familiar with this research. And you go, now their conclusion is Christians and non-Christians have about the same percentage. Let me be a little more precise. People who don't believe and people who say, I believe, have the same percentage of issues. People who follow Jesus Christ do not have the same percentage of issues. So I know I'm, I'm quibbling a little bit here. There's a difference between saying, I believe. There's a difference between these Jewish guys saying, in the name of Jesus, do something here. And Paul who says, I follow Jesus Christ. I have surrendered to his will. Now do what you want to do through me. And what did it say? God did unbelievably powerful things through Paul. And that's my message for us is just saying we believe in Jesus has no power in it. It doesn't transform a culture. But when you and I walk out and say, I follow Jesus Christ, this is my way. Don't you think that's a great way? I'd love it if we just started calling ourselves instead of Christians, we're the people of the way. In other words, we're following him. This is our way. This is who we are now. That is unbelievably powerful. Does that make sense? That's your assignment. 
follow Jesus. Just say, Lord, what do you want to do here? Make this a new man, this a new woman, and watch our culture become transformed. Watch our world completely change. And then if they come for me and you guys are there, they can drag you off into the assembly a little bit because I'll be busy, all right? In all seriousness, sorry for the preaching, but I'm serious about this. That's the lesson. Go follow Jesus and watch powerful things happen. Next week, Paul goes to Jerusalem and really, really interesting things start to happen there. And so next week in Jerusalem, I'll see you then.